Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. And we are live. Hello, this is Ruben from Dub's podcast, Connection Loop. And today I have Joel Block with me. We are going to talk about the most essential business trends for 2021 and beyond. Um, we're so honored to have Joel on the show. Joel, if you could start with a short bio and let's get into the topic. Well, I, I uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Uh, I started in the CPA business. I wasn't really cut out for it. Uh, and then I kind of went on, built a company. I sold that company after I raised a whole bunch of money for it and, and then have uh, been buying and selling companies ever since. So I run a hedge fund. Uh, I've been in venture capital funding other companies and uh, really just I've been in the business of, of doing deals really for most of my, my career. I, I find companies, I bet on them and, and that's it. And by the way, uh, some people think I'm a professional gambler and uh, funny enough, I, I started as a professional blackjack player. So I, I used to play cards. Okay. So when, when venture capitalists say that they're, they're placing bets, um, it's, it's not, it's not untrue. A lot of the time it's, it's not, it's well, it's I mean, the bottom line is that you're betting on a company to be successful. Now, um, uh, they're, they're probably not just throwing their money into the wind. I mean, they've got a little bit of inside track here on some stuff, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're making legitimate bets and the bets don't always pay off. Right. It just, it just takes that one, one out of a hundred. Well, you know, if it's your business, it takes more than one, you know, because <laughs> you got investors, you got to pay them back. And, you know, right. so it, it, it seems like if, if, if an individual could hit it one time and make yeah. uh, you know a lot, but for a business, it's got to keep going, you know, it's so, be repeated. yeah, the better, the better ones are hitting uh, two out of 10, the other ones, uh, one out of 10 or less. Nice. So business trends for 2021. I think that there's, there's a, a lot of really interesting topics here centered around sustainability, financial st- sustainability, and also just efficiency of capital of resources could you kind of take us through some of the trends that you are seeing? Well, let's talk about the the biggest one of all, which is a, which is a new one. You know, just really in the last uh, you know year, only because of the pandemic, uh, is work from home. Work from home has changed so much for so many people, and and so we kind of have to start with that one. You okay with that? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so you know, imagine uh, you know we're starting to open up now, and people are going to start going back to work, and uh, I don't know how many people exactly are going to go back into the office, but uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of looking like some companies are going to go back 100%. Some companies are not going to go back at all. Uh, more or less, it's probably going to be 50-50 where people are going to maybe go on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Most people don't want to be home full time. They want to go in and get some socializing, especially younger people like to socialize. They see other people. Older people, uh, you know, they tend to have responsibilities. So working from home works great for them. Uh, you know, and so... Um, you know, it's probably going to be a 50-50 kind of arrangement. So let's say it's 50-50. Let's think about the impact of 50% of the people working at home and 50% of the people going downtown. Yeah. First thing is you get in your car in the morning and you drive to work. Theoretically, there should be less cars on the freeway. Uh, You know, that's not true in Los Angeles just quite yet, but uh, hopefully uh, we'll start to see a reduction in cars. It's, It's kind of back to where it was before the pandemic. Um, but let's think about this. Uh, so let's say that there's half as many cars because half as many people are going to work on, on their busy day. 
Uh, what that means is that uh, half as many speeding tickets, half as many parking tickets, half as many mm -hmm. sales tax for uh, parking lot owners. So cities and governments stand to lose greatly. And so I always ask two questions. One is what's the impact? And two is who wins, who loses? And so, you know, when I look at that, to me, the loser are these governments and they're going to have to think about new ways to generate revenue. And if you look, they're already starting to find new ways. Uh, they're thinking about taxing cryptocurrency. They, they recently implemented uh, a tax at LAX, $10 for every uh, car that comes into the airport or something. That's what my service told me that they have to pay. So uh, everybody's starting to think, holy cow, you know, our revenue streams have been disrupted. Everything has been disrupted by the pandemic. It's not just work from home. It's it's all sorts of systems and we need to be prepared for that. And we could go on. We could go on and on with this as, as deep as you want. Yeah, I agree. I tend to agree with 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 this philosophy, generally speaking. I mean, there's a certain efficiency that happens when we work from home, assuming that we have our things sorted out at home with our kids and our pets and and what and whatnot. Um, there are definitely some benefits. I mean, I have noticed a number of companies reporting that their productivity has skyrocketed because of the work from home effort. Why? Because people probably work more. They spend less time getting ready and doing their hair and, you know, getting ready. They're, they're, I, I could be wearing pajamas from the waist down right now. It didn't, doesn't take me a lot of time to get ready. Um, so I, I tend to agree that that is a, a good thing. You know, my question for you is, you know, what is the technology that we are going to need to consume to make this more appropriate, to make it so that employers I mean, this is the death of the micromanager, you know, that micromanager that loves to breathe down someone's neck and just watch them work. Um, this is the death of them, because how do you do that in a virtual world? It's different. I mean, you can have messaging on Slack, you can over meet in Zoom. Um, but at the same time, how how is it going to look technologically speaking? Um, where well, so so th let's think about that for a second. Uh, so this micromanager is a good, good point you bring up. Uh, some people will just not be able to adapt to this mm. uh, to this new approach. Yes. So companies, let's say let's say the owner of the company is the micromanager. Mm -hmm. uh, that company will say everybody's got to come in, and then people are going to say, "Well, I either I don't want to come in uh, to that job, and I'm going to get a different job." And think about what's going to happen. Think about the employment changes. If you can work from anywhere, uh, and we got to go through a couple scenarios here first, but. Uh, let's look at the real estate impact. If if fifty percent of the people are now working uh, from home, uh, they're probably going to need a little more real estate. They need a maybe an office, maybe they want a gym, maybe they need a room for grandma, uh, you know, or, or for somebody who lives with them that they care for. Uh, you know, you have all these different situations, and and because of those reasons, uh, people now are starting to think about moving not just to the suburbs. Uh, you know, you can't get a six, seven, eight bedroom house in most suburbs. I mean, unless you're talking about a giant house. But, you know, if you move to rural areas where you go further away, I mean, really further away, uh, you know, you can buy a really big house for, uh, you know, for, for a song, uh, certainly much less than you're going to sell your suburban or urban house for. And, and that gives you a lot of options. Um, but those people now that are living, let's say, 100 miles away and can't come in the office anymore, uh, let's say you're the best uh, advertising salesperson going, but you don't live you know, near New York City. Well, maybe it doesn't matter anymore that you don't live near New York City. Maybe you can be uh, on a new team uh, and be remote. So it opens the door for recruiting to happen in all different kinds of places. 
And so the real estate impacts the way that employment happens and companies where you have micromanagers that don't adapt to this new, uh, this new way of working are, are going to get wiped out. They're just, those people are going to go uh, the way of the horse and buggy. And that's <laughs> just kind of, kind of how it is. And, you know, if you, if you stop and think about it, uh, there are a lot of institutions that are uh, breaking down. They're, they're old institutions uh, and they just, it, they're ripe for change. And so, for example, uh, our penal system, you know, the way we punish people, it's, it's a really vengeful system. I mean, it's just, we just want people to suffer when we get mad at them. And, and, and I get that. The, the, uh, the bail system is, is, a, is an 800 year old system and maybe it's not working that great anymore. The way we educate children, lining them up in rows and kind of teaching them to really kind of preparing them to be factory workers on an assembly line. Uh, the idea of a 40 hour work week when everybody has to work in a, in a certain building. And so that the person next to me takes the thing I worked on and does the next step. And I mean, of course, in that world, you have to work together, but uh, you know, knowledge workers, and most of us are information and knowledge workers. Uh, for those of us that are doing knowledge work, uh, we can work uh, in different environments, which is called asynchronously. We can work in different places at different times and, and it really doesn't matter. So does the 40 hour work week still make sense? Not really. It doesn't make sense at all. Now, uh, do there need to be some hours when people can get a hold of each other? Yeah, there do. There, there, there do have to be that sort of thing. But mm. the rules are all changing and institutions are breaking and, and we all need to rethink some things and people that aren't willing to do that are, 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 are going down. Well, let me ask you this. Based on that assumption, which I agree with, why is the real estate market in 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 large cities going wild right now? In LA, my wife's a yeah. real estate agent, so I hear about this a lot. In LA, there are multiple bid options, um, prices that are going way more than what the listing price was. Yes, a lot of this has to do with interest rates. There's no doubt about that. But there's still an inherent demand to be in these major populous where you know x percent of of our workforce now can actually go and move to you know some some town in, in texas or well, you know so just I, I understand california has caused a lot of problems for the rest of the country so you know las vegas was one of the first people yeah. would leave here with a bag full of money go to las vegas where the properties were very cheap and now they're not cheap anymore because mm -hmm. californians have come in and have changed their economy and that's now happening in Idaho, Washington State, uh, Oregon. It's happening all over the West Coast and, and around, uh, even in Texas, because a lot of Californians are moving to Texas. So lots of things are happening. But why is the prices going up? For There are many reasons. One, interest rates are low, that they, but they've been low. So that's not the reason that, that it's happening all of a sudden. I think in, in urban areas, uh, and I think that especially in a place like Los Angeles, a couple of things are happening. And I think that one of it is that the politics are so divisive and they're so bad. Uh, the homelessness problem is so bad in some of these cities that people are escaping these cities. So partly you had urban to suburban and suburban to rural. You had that phenomenon. But you also just have a lot of people that want to get out from wherever they are so their kids can go to different, better schools. You know, in the 70s, it was white flight. It was a race thing. It's not, not a race thing anymore. Now it's people want to get away from cities that allow uh, camping on public grounds. I mean, it's it's just, and it's filthy and it's dangerous and it's uh, it's not good for the homeless people. It's not good for the, the citizens who live anywhere nearby. So it's it's a bad situation for everyone. And, and governments have done a poor job of addressing it. And the people that have the money 
uh, move out. And if they got to pay a little extra, so be it, you know, but they want to move to areas that are safer and better for their children uh, that don't have these problems. And suburban areas tend not to have uh, these problems the same way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like the luckiest guy on the planet when I can take my my bike to my country club, when I can take it to my my kids after school program, when I can take it to and I and I, I feel safe. I feel very privileged to have that experience where whereas in some other towns where real estate's extremely expensive, in fact, maybe 10 times more expensive than it out than it is in this in the rural areas where they don't have that necessarily that, that, that peace or that security. So it's, it's, it's definitely a paradox, but I agree with you. Um, now you, one of the other topics that you mentioned was this Uberization of resources where yeah. we don't fully consume something if we don't need it. So I've seen a lot of marketing happening, for example, for shared CFOs. <laughs> um, love to get your take on that. That's kind of the shared CFOs is, is sort of an example of that. I mean, you run a software as a service business. That's sort of an example of that where you partition or you fractionalize a server and let lots of people take advantage of it and you handle it for them. Um, that's kind of an offshoot of it. What I really, you know, let, let's think about what Uber did. You know, Uber, uh, you know, replacing taxis, and we all understand that part, but think about what they really did. So you've got a car that sits on your driveway. And the car companies, uh, you know, 75 years ago, start thinking about how are we going to sell more cars? And, you know, I don't know, 50 years ago, they come up with the idea of leases. And they say, you can only drive your car 12,000 miles a year under the lease. Otherwise, you got to pay extra. And here's how much it costs for you to have this car. Well, you know, if you drive 60 miles an hour for, uh, you know, I don't know, for 16 hours, that's, uh, what is that? That's about, uh, that's about a thousand miles a month. And so the, so 16 hours is about a thousand miles. That's about 5% of your day. So that car is only available to you for 5% of your day, including nighttime. I mean, it's, it's not available to you very much in, in order for you to stay compliant with the rules and, and stay inside the lease terms. So, uh, you know, they've convinced us that 5% is an okay utilization of our automobile. But automobiles are, you know, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 75, 100. I mean, I mean, there are cars that, that I'm not even talking about fancy cars. I mean, just regular old cars go up to 90 or 100,000. You know, if you have got a big family, I mean, that's a lot of dough. And when you stop and think about 5%, people are saying that's kind of a bad deal. It's kind of a bad deal. So what is a better deal? A better deal would be to have one person who makes a business out of using their car 60%. And I don't have any car. You know, and, and I just pay them to use part of their car because mm -hmm. that's the business they're in and they focus on doing that business. And so Uber was very smart. It was smart because they got people who use their car 5% to be able to make money from it. People who use their car 5% like me uh, to use my car even less and maybe even not need any car or just have, uh, you know, let's say a family of four or five cars can reduce down to three cars or whatever it is. And so it changes. So companies need to think about the same things. Uh, do we have a conference room that we're not using uh, more than an hour a day that we could maybe rent out? Uh, do we have machinery that we could, uh, you know, lease out to other companies or rent on a short-term basis to other companies that uh, need to use it? Do we have facilities of any kind? Uh, there are people who have swimming pools uh, that will uh, allow sharing, or they'll have a backyard and they'll let other neighborhood dogs come over and use their their uh, playground or their backyard or whatever if you don't have that. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of these things popping up and, and it's it's clearly a business trend. And I just call it asset Uberization. 
but even shared server services like what you do uh, is very much a, a concept of why would I buy the service and build it if you can do a better job of it than me? I mean, it's all you think about all day long. I'm sure you're pretty good at it by now. You know, it's all you think about. Uh, me, I haven't thought about it at all and, and I wouldn't even know where to start. So it doesn't make any sense. So that's that's kind of the concept of asset uberization. And it's, it's important. So if you come across something that uh, you have extra of that people need, uh, that's an opportunity for you to, you know, make a business decision. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things that I think about is, is sometimes there are repercussions when you share assets. Thinking of sharing my car with someone like through Turo, that uh, app sharing um, site when you can rent your car to anyone around you that wants to rent the car. You know, I think, I think to myself, if someone's going to rent my car and take it, what, what can they do to my, to my vehicle? Um, could, where are they going to bring it back? Is it going to be damaged? Is it going to smell like cigarettes? Are the tires going to be messed up? You yeah. know, whereas other types of things, which may be more kind of futuristic or technological, you don't have to deal with any sacrifices like a shared server. A shared server is an intelligent machine that is deploying bandwidth and resources and assets based on usage. So a lot of people that buy domains or have servers, they don't get traffic and others, they have more. There are intelligent you know, load balancing and auto expansion uh, for servers that can accommodate that where there's really no downside. All that all that you experience is the upside, the cost savings. Yeah, I don't, so, I don't think that the uh, I don't think the car example is uh, is any. I wouldn't endorse that one either. I, I don't think yeah. it's the best thing. I I don't know how the insurance works. You know, if somebody got injured and you're, right. who's whose car is it really? You know, I mean, yeah. ultimately it's. So I, I think there's that model is kind of a bad model, but. I think Uber did a good job with it where they yes. they divided up the car. They got one person to use a 60% and that you know makes it possible for other people to do something different. Uh, listen, just because it's a good idea doesn't mean that the business model that implements it's going to be a great idea. So there you have you to go. kind of make sure you get both of them correct. Uh, but there are lots of examples of this you know, that, that we just talked about. And uh, it's something for people to pay attention to because it's a way for their business to save money. Uh, capital preservation is important. Cost containment is important. Companies are trying to make up for lost time because of the pandemic. And, and these are all great ways for them to do that. Yeah. Um, another question that I have for you is this idea of chasing capital. So, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs kind of find themselves in this in this loop of having to constantly chase money so that they can build what they want and sell it and go pay their investors back one day. And it's this chicken and the egg problem where I can't build it unless I have capital and so on and so forth. Um, one of the trends that I'm noticing is that now with easy tech, with uh, all sorts of, um, you know, methods of selling, whether it's sending one-to-one -one videos like this or whether it's just general streamlining of communication, people can sell now um, a lot easier. And as a result, you can actually drive revenue prior to raising money and kind of avoid that, that, that capital chase problem. What are some of the trends that you are noticing for entrepreneurs, for startup folks that are able to, to, to sell and then maybe potentially delay the fundraise um, yeah. so that they can have more leverage? You know, you got to be very careful with these things. Um, the government, uh, the government has really strict rules about how this sort of thing works. So, for example, when you buy something on Amazon, uh, you know, if you give them your credit card, they don't charge your credit card the minute that you hit go. They don't charge your credit card until they ship the product. So it has to actually physically leave their building before they can take the money. There's a trade 
because the government doesn't want consumers to take a risk. Uh, I'm in the, I run a fund, a hedge fund. So investors give me money and then I go buy things with it. Those investors deliberately take a risk and they don't just take a risk uh, randomly. Uh, we gave them documents that explain the risks very carefully. We tell them all the things that we're going to be doing with their money and all the things that go wrong, some things that go right, but we tell them as much as we can. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a risk business. The government doesn't like it very much, but they understand that there are people who want to make those kind of investments and, and they allow it. Uh, but let's say that you're a regular consumer and I'm going to get back to your question about, you know, pre-selling and some other things. Let's say you go to uh, the supermarket and you buy a bag of groceries. You know, you give the clerk uh, the, the money. The clerk gives you the bag. Transaction's over. Wash your hands. Move on. And, and you're done. Nobody took any risk and everything went great. But let's say, for example, that you pre-sell, uh, you know, some services. You say to somebody, hey, look, we're going to be building this uh, new thing. Uh, give us some money. And, uh, you know, in six months, we'll have the computers built and everything will be great. And, it'll, and then we'll start doing it, you know. Well, if it turns out that you are unable to deliver those services, those people would have a claim to get their money back. And, and that's exactly what you don't want because they're not investors. Those people are not taking any risk. And that's why Kickstarter, uh, you know, did a great job is that they made it possible for you to donate and get a reward mm -hmm. if you, uh, you know, if you are successful in building the product correctly the way that, that you promised that you wouldn't. Uh, if you're not successful, then, hey, they made a donation and, you know, that's it. Uh, that's not that's not permission to steal the money and to be uh, flagrantly terrible. I mean, that's not what that's about. But if you make a good effort and it doesn't work out, then it doesn't work out. So, you know, you really want to be very careful and not find yourself in a situation uh, where you have tricked people or you I mean, even even inadvertently or not deliberately. Uh, you cannot get people to take a risk that uh, that they don't understand or, or you could find yourself in trouble. So I just put that caution out there to be very careful. Uh, every entrepreneur thinks about that. There's got to be a better way than, than equity capital because equity capital, it's painful, it's expensive, uh, it's complicated. It's all sorts of things that they don't like. Uh, but the government has done this on purpose because uh, most people don't know how to protect themselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so they have to make sure that you're doing a good job to protect people. Yeah, I think I think as a software company, I think we're very fortunate because we've really made an effort to build a community around what we're building. And, you know, we're very transparent with our roadmap. We tell people what we have and we tell people what we're building. And, you know, by having people buy into our brand, into our customer service, into the all the robust features that we currently have, people understand that it's an evolution and that, you know, with a little bit of patience, we can we can build tech that. Well, I mean, I mean, listen, what, what you're describing is that there's a baseline and you're adding features. Yeah. At least at least there. Okay, look, here's what it is for twenty dollars or fifty dollars. You get the baseline and hopefully in a month or two, we're going to have more things and more things and more things. And then maybe the price will go up a little bit and we'll add more things and more things. And they, they, they understand the risk. They're understanding it. But it's that's different from what a lot of other entrepreneurs try to do and say, uh, like, which is what Kickstarter specializes in. Uh, give us the money now and we'll mail you the product when it's ready. Yeah. They, the the right. Kickstarter way is the right way to do it. Correct. Uh, short of that, your situation is quite different because yeah. you're going to give, you're giving, no, people aren't giving you money for nothing. Right. They may not get the best product that you're ever going to deliver. In fact, one of the things that I always like to say is that uh, this is the worst 
that this product is ever going to be. It's only going to get better in the future. Right, right? right. And so that's kind of what you're describing is the scenario that this is the worst it's ever going to be. Here's the price. And people go, that's not too bad of a price. Okay, fine. They give you the money and then you do more and more. That's a good company that does what you're describing, that you're adding more and more services, more and more features and making it better and better. So, yeah, uh, you know, well said, well said. Now you wrote a book. Talk yeah. To me, talk to me about that book. Stop in hustling. Fact, gigs. In fact, I, I, is that a poster that I see right behind it, you? It is. Stop hustling gigs and start building a business. You know, I've been in the venture capital and the hedge fund business for 30 years. Uh, I've been inside of a thousand company. I've done dozens of deals where I've invested in companies and been involved in companies, set companies up and so forth. And, uh, and in fact, I, I actually run a mastermind of other hedge fund managers. I mean, so, you know, we're involved in talking about some pretty complicated stuff and going inside lots of companies. Uh, there are some companies that really do things in a good way. I mean, re they really do a good job. And, and I just kind of had this idea a long time ago that uh, I really need to start documenting some of the things that I've learned in my career for my children. I really need to start writing it down. All the things that I learned in different companies and the way that I negotiate and the way that I uh, the way that I think about selling and all the other things that I like to do. Um, so what I did is I just made a list of, of it turns out to be about 110 things that, you know, that I learned along the way. And it, it's a very easy read. I mean, the book is uh, it's uh, 110 pages, 120 pages, very or 140 pages, very short book. Uh, and the chapters are a couple pages each, but uh, you know, uh, they read quick, but, you know, if you could master one every so often, uh, it would be a home run for you. And most people, uh, when they read this book, they understand why they're not making any money. They understand why uh, this, uh, this the things that they're doing are not working for them and how they could do them better. And uh, it's 110 just great ideas that I've either developed myself, attitudes I've gotten myself or things I've learned inside of other companies fabulous and folks can find that on amazon and uh i'm assuming any any kind of place where you can buy books yeah i think amazon might be uh the main place great and then where can folks uh connect with you linkedin social channels yeah I, listen i've got a i've got a very large following on on all the social media platforms and uh joelblock.com is probably the best place amazing well joel thank you so much for your time really appreciate it and I look forward to seeing you on linkedin Hey, well, listen, man, thank you very much. Appreciate, uh, uh, you know, having the time to visit and we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much.